This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as me, at Laura Zarrow. According to a Harvard survey, at least 85% of Americans believe that things like affordable health care, quality education, fair work, and a healthy environment are essential rights. So why does American problem solving boil down to party politics with binary options where one side wins and the other loses? My guest today is just the person to help us understand how this kind of zero-sum thinking and the power brokers who drive it has shaped so much of American life, not only fueling racism and sexism, but pitting us against each other in ways that hurt everyone. Heather McGee designs and promotes solutions to inequality in America. And by the way, how is that for a description of what somebody does in this world? I'm awestruck. Her 2020 TED Talk, Racism Has a Cost for Everyone, reached 1 million views in just two months online. And it's not surprising. It's really powerful. I recommend that you check it out. For nearly two decades, Heather has helped build the nonpartisan Think and Do Tank Demos, serving four years as its president. She's chair of the Board of Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization. As an expert in economic and social policy, she's drafted legislation testified before Congress, and contributed regularly to news shows, including NBC's Meet the Press. Heather's also the author of a really powerful new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And I couldn't be more grateful to have her here today. So Heather, welcome to Women at Work. I'm so excited to be with you, Laura. So Heather, I want to start with the election for a minute, because as I read the book, it kept resonating for me. There was kind of this stunning reflection of America as if we were two warring teams Mm. vying for narrow percentage points as if we were really um, in this battle for who would dominate decision making, but in a way that didn't seem like it really reflected what we as Americans believe and want and need when it comes to problem solving in real life. Why are we there? Why are we so disconnected from a system that's actually going to meet our needs? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking that, Laura. And I think it's really important to ground ourselves in the truth of our commonalities, right? When it comes down to it, black, white, or brown, red state or blue state, we all pretty much want the same things for our lives and for our families and our communities, right? We want... We want to be economically secure. We want to have personal freedom in our lives to meet our basic needs and pursue our dreams. We want to drink clean water and have access to, you know, a livable, beautiful space. We want to be able to afford the things we need. We want to not worry. And we want to not worry that the people we put in charge of solving the big problems in society are not doing their jobs at best and making the problem worse at worst. And, 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 and fortunately, all of those things I just described are pretty far out of reach for your average American, black, white, or brown, red state, or blue state, right? It just feels like we can't seem to have nice things in this country. And by nice things, I don't mean self-driving cars, which I don't 
actually think we need or you know, <laughs> right. or, or like or nice lo- things like a pretty outfit to wear exactly or, or laundry that does itself which I do think we need um, that would be awesome <laughs> but I mean things like universal child care and health care and paid family leave and and modern reliable infrastructure and a well-funded school in every neighborhood those are the types of things that it feels like one of the greatest countries on earth, the country with the largest economy on earth, the oldest democracy on earth should be able to figure out. And this zero sum thinking that you identified, Laura, the idea that, you know, this this group of people, Americans are actually, you know, a set of teams that are competing and that every point scored by one team is a point less from the other team is really, I found in the course of writing The Sum of Us, our core block to progress. In America, these questions of whose team you're on, what you think of other people really often does come down to race. And it comes down to race, particularly for white people, that zero sum thinking that I talked about is something that sociologists find to be much more prevalent among white Americans than Americans of color. This idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks expense. And and I don't wanna naturalize that idea. I don't think it's normal that that's the case. You know, it's not like, oh, human beings are tribal. So of course that's the way. It's not, you know, other societies don't have this level of zero sum thinking. Not every American group has this level of zero sum thinking. And so I wanted to look back at where the zero sum story came from. And it came from our earliest history, our you know, earliest economic model of slavery and genocide and, and the expropriation of land. But it's been revived every generation by powerful elites who know that keeping us divided is actually keeping us um, you know, in the status quo that we currently are in, where wealth is concentrated at the top. So people who are sort of succeeding politically and economically today you can often find the zero-sum story on their lips. It's a story that is told through politics in you know, a lot of the media um, to keep us in our camps and keep us divided. That thinking also seems to permeate the workplace. Mm. And in the workplace, it gets, um, we, and we've talked about it here on Women at Work for years, this notion that women can't advance, they'll be taking opportunities away from men, jobs mm-hmm. away from men, power mm-hmm. away from men. And the workforce and people who study the workforce produce statistics all the time, explaining that um, diversity is going to lead to higher profits, more innovation, that we're better off together. Yet still, even where in some ways, the problem solving is simplified by the drive for profit directly. Mm-hmm. It's still pernicious and doesn't really get solved. And then mm-hmm. in American life, and when we deal with the complexities of racism, it's even exponentially more complex. Mm-hmm. How can we start to frame a discourse where we move away from it? And is it that we first have to understand what causes it? I thought think so. I mean, that's why I start the some of us with a, a quick history of where the zero-sum thinking came from and, and both where it came from, what economic models it was justifying, whose interest it serves, right? Who's selling the story for what profit, you know? Um, <laughs> these things are not just, you know, out there in the ether, right? They're they're packaged and broadcast and marketed, they're they're signaled. Um they're symbolized. This is the way narratives work. Everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And so it is really important to identify, hey, what's that What's that deep story that's being broadcast as we're talking about 
gender diversity, um, gender diversity, gender equality. What's that deep story that's being broadcast as we talk about wages and benefits? What's the deep story that's being talked about when we talk about diversity in the workplace? So that zero sum is one of those deep stories um, and we need to unearth it because it's simply not true. As you said, Laura, there's just, you know, reams of research about the win-win of diversity, the importance of looking towards a society and, you know, a business that has even higher horizons than we have today, right? Ultimately, it's a, it's a mentality of scarcity. The idea that there are only so many seats at the table and that there's only so much profit to go around and that there's only so much, so many resources for a community. And so if I get some, you, you don't. Um, that's just not the case. What's more the case is that we are losing out when we keep so many of our best players sidelined, saddled with a lack of opportunity, saddled with debt, saddled with being locked out of the networks for, for promotion and for opportunity and advancement. But again, you're right, Laura, that that's, you know, this is not news, right? It's, you know, every year there's another study, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco said that the economic gap between white men and everybody else cost the United States economy in 2019 $2.6 trillion. That was a few weeks ago. Right. And yet the same people who seem to always throw up, well, you know, it's the economy as a reason to not do things in the public interest, right? We can't afford it. It's a job killer, that kind of thing. Completely ignore the economic evidence that says that some of these public interest policies uh, and a more equitable economy is actually going to be good for the economy. And that's something I realized with a real aha after working for 20 years to try to bring research to policymakers to make better economic decisions. I just, just, just really kind of came to me with a big duh moment. It was like, oh, it's not the economy that they're defending against, you know, regulation of corporate polluters or, you know, public interest consumer safeguards or, you know, more diversity and inclusion. It's their place in the economy that they are yes. defending, it's right? It's, it's the economy as it is with this deep hierarchies and inequalities, right? And their feeling of security at the top of it. That's what they're defending. It's not the GDP. <laughs> No, because otherwise it would be as if philosophy um, is the thing that, what's the right theory behind driving the economy? And we debate only theories, but it's this, it's not really what's behind this. It's more this kind of what's the core fear and mm -hmm. what's the core value. That's right. Um, we had a guest last week who was talking about domestic, particularly making domestic life work. And she mm. talked about this dynamic where she realized that men's time is valued like their diamonds um, and women's time is valued like it's sand. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was thinking about when we're problem solving, when are we problem driven? When are we values driven? Now take this out of that very simple equation. And you talked about this with exceptional eloquence in the book that there's both the deep fear of losing power for the dominant forces in society, yeah. racially based and a, that boils down to a core value about who matters as a human being. Yeah. And like, it, this is not theory. This is, yeah. these are fundamental societal questions. Yeah. Yeah, this is not this is not economics. I mean, that's the thing, right? I pursued a career in economics to try to answer these questions of why do we have so many poverty wages in the country? Why is it so hard for working families to get ahead? Why have we not figured out 
um, so many of the answers to how you just provide a decent standard of living for the people in your society who contribute to it. Um, but what I discovered is that it's not that we don't know the formula. In right. fact, you know, the, the, the days when one man could graduate from high school, walk into a factory and walk out, you know, set for life, the days when college, the cost of it was picked up by the government, the days when housing was massively subsidized, all of those structures for economic opportunity that made the American dream real for tens of millions of people for whom it had would have absolutely been out of reach was a formula for widely shared prosperity. And if you look at all the economic data, it shows that we were a more equitable society. We grew faster in terms of economic growth. And yet there was this massive, massive asterisk. And that massive asterisk was that that social contract was for whites only. Mm -hmm. Each of those things I talked about, collective bargaining, unions often discriminated and, and, and the workforce was massively segregated. The housing subsidies by federal fiat excluded black people. The GI Bill and college segregated, segregated. All of these pieces of the American dream were for whites only. And once, and this was really the insight that I hit upon in the book, Laura, once the civil rights movement welcomed and to a certain degree as well, the women's rights movement sort of, you know, pushed in, welcomed is not the right word, right? <laughs> right. pushed in, um, you know, people of color and women into that contract. That was when, you know, the original signatories of it sort of got up and walked away from the table. And then you had this massive shift in our politics and in our economic decision-making away from the common good, away from ensuring a decent standard of living for all of our people, because the people were suddenly more suspect. And you were inviting in the people who were lower in this sort of invisible ladder of human hierarchy. And suddenly you had the majority of voters, white voters, um, you know, just sort of turn their back on that formula. And, and that's really where we've been. This age of inequality has really been the story of people who would have been New Deal Democrats, who would have you know, believed in a high standard of living for everyone, believed in government's role in investing in our economy and in, in economic security, um, turning their back on that and turning towards a, a much harsher version of capitalism um, because of the fulcrum moment of integration of our economy. Which is heartbreaking. Um, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Heather McGee, who chairs the Board of Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization. And we're talking about her extraordinary book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. So Heather, as you're describing that, this kind of devastating, um, like you said, fulcrum, where we're mobilizing to build on a framework for prosperity that was in place that seems to have gotten corrupted and dismantled at the very moment that it meant really seeing everyone as equally worthy of it. It brought mm -hmm. America's racism into high relief and really made it systemic at a whole other level. Am I accurate in how I'm understanding it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The story at the heart of the Some of Us is the story that was replicated in 
countless towns and cities across the country. It's really small, but it stands for so much. And, and the Some of Us is a story of, of a journey that I took across the country over the course of three years, interviewing people and visiting places. And one of the places I visited early in my travels was Montgomery, Alabama. And it, the, the city used to have in the middle of the town a, a central park called Oak Park that had a grand resort style public pool. And these were the kinds of public pools that held thousands of swimmers at a time. And there used to be nearly 2000 of them across the country that were built in the thirties and forties with tax dollars. It was sort of this very concrete symbol of government's commitment to a high standard of living among its people. The sort of, you know, the United States having the highest standard of living in the world and the American dream. And it included this, this idea that people could just swim for free in the middle of the city on a like hot Recreation, cooling yeah. in the heat, exercise, exactly. the good life. The good life. You Maybe you meet your wife there, you know, you're, I mean, it's just like, I mean, what could be better? You know? At least the memories are made of, yes. Yes, exactly. Um, and yet, in many of these places, not just in the South, those taxpayer-funded pools were segregated and they were for whites only. The idea of, you know, black and white people in bathing suits near each other was just a, a bridge too far. And, but yet in the 50s and 60s, black citizens began to have, you know, more organization saying, you know, those are our tax dollars, shouldn't we be able to swim too? And as courts began to threaten integration, instead of integrating, many communities drained their public pools rather than let black families swim too. And that's what happened in Montgomery, Alabama, where in Oak Park, in the center of the city, they drained the pool, they filled it with dirt. They not only did that, but in order to avoid integration of public amenities, they closed down the entire parks and recreation department. They even, Laura, sold off the animals in the zoo. And they kept it closed for a decade. This was not some flash in the pan moment of racial strife that was paved over. You were near to 1970 before oh Montgomery God. had a parks and recreation department. So it, it, am I, the thing that's I'm trying to wrap my head around because I can't relate to it emotionally. Yeah. But it's the kind of hate of the other that everybody could suffer rather than enjoy together. I like to think of it, I mean, one of the big things I try to do in the book is really try to empathize. Because if I don't try to put myself in the shoes of the people who make certain decisions and who are vulnerable to certain stories and certain propaganda, then it's, you know, it's easy to just say, okay, you know, that's them, that was then, you know, we could never think that way. Nobody good could ever think that way. And then you don't make progress. You don't, you don't recognize those same tropes as they're working on you, you know, in the day to day. So I try to think, okay, what was it? And I think hate is not quite it. Obviously for some people it's hate. But that doesn't get you to a majority, right? That doesn't get you from, for example, in 1960, when you had nearly 70% of white Americans believing that the government ought to provide a job for everyone who couldn't find one in the private sector, um, and that the government ought to provide a minimum standard of income in the country that you couldn't fall below, you know, no matter the, the vicissitudes of economic life. That was in 1960, nearly 70% of white Americans and then after the civil rights movement burst onto the public consciousness through the March on Washington and Kennedy endorsing it in 63, you saw the share of white Americans who believed in that muscular a role for an economic guarantee 
for government in economic guarantees fall to 35%, from nearly 70 to 35%. So that's not that huge shift, like on a dime, it's not about hate, I don't think. It's about something more insidious, which I think carries with us in our politics today. And by that, Laura, I mean, it's about this idea that your standard of living, your well-being, your worth, your esteem in society is sort of propped up by these invisible supports that make it relatively easier for you to move through life, to see a return on what you put in in society. And that's that's what life was like as a white person. Um, and most of those things were invisible. You know, most people today couldn't name all the different ways that government handouts created economic security, <laughs> right, for white people. It was just a given that you would have nice housing to just, you know, sort of walk into this with American a low down prosperity payment. prosperity exactly. and the American way of life working, but now we call it handouts. Exactly. And so it's, so what happens when suddenly the people that you've been taught are not worthy of those things? Not because you hate them, but they're not worthy of them. Going back right? to value. Right, exactly. They're, there's something wrong with them. They don't try hard enough. They're dirty, they're unclean. They're sort of systemically poor. It's not really clear why they're so poor, but they just are. And so they're really not worthy of being included in you know, the good American citizen identity. And so suddenly when the government come, goes from literally enforcing and writing the laws that says those people are not worthy to then saying here, they can go to school with your kids. They can swim with you in the pool. They deserve, you know, uh, public benefits as well and public investment. It, it's a betrayal and it, it sort of destabilizes your sense of your own value that suddenly you might be on the same rung on the ladder of these people that you've been taught to disdain and distrust. So the same thing that may have been your deserved reward for serving in the military. Mm -hmm. Now, if you need it, but also people of different races need it, mm -hmm. then it changes the, the value of it in your That's own right. perception. That's right. Um, public goods were popular among white Americans only as long as and for the public they perceive to be good. Public goods only for the public that white Americans perceive to be good. And that Today, an example of it now is with healthcare, for example, right? We have gone so long with this employer connected model of healthcare, which is, you know, a real outlier in, global, in the global economy, right? Um, and makes pretty much zero sense whatsoever, none, right? right. It, none whatsoever. You know, the which is days maybe of, why we're the only major industrialized right. nation who does this, but go ahead. <laughs> or maybe it's just great and that's why we're doing it. <laughs> but you know, you know, I trace in the book the way that that racism has held us back from having a national health insurance plan that would free people up, free businesses up. You know, I really think of it as a way to sort of unlock so much potential from businesses and human beings. Um, you know, but we we haven't done it because of racism. And and today, white Americans are the largest group of the uninsured. And yet, white in the public opinion polling, they have never, as a group, the majority of white Americans have been opposed to the Affordable Care Act since its inception. It has never gotten over fifty percent approval rating among white people. 
And it's a really modest thing, the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. It's like a website and some consumer protections. You know, it's not like, you know. Right, it's, right. it's a few safety nets in a marketplace, right? Right, exactly. Um, and, and in fact, when you break down each of the provisions, you know, that opposition softens, but it's the general idea. And the idea is that, um, you know, any kind of government assistance has now become so degraded in white Americans' minds um, that you don't want to be a part of it, right? Even you, it's, if you need it. Even if you need it, even if you need it. Um, you know, I, I visit folks in Texas in the book where it's the largest number of people who are going without health insurance and they refuse to expand Medicaid, even though it is a massive, massive good deal from the federal government paying nine out of every ten dollars to cover people who are decidedly working class. These are people who are making minimum wage and less, a little bit above minimum wage, who are not getting health insurance from their employers and obviously can't afford to buy it on their own. If we are suffering. Exactly. If we have an economy that says that that wage is an acceptable wage, $7.25, even $10. If we think that's an acceptable wage, then we should have to assume that we as the public have to pay for health care because seven dollars and twenty five cents is not buying health care for your family. Right? <laughs> Heather, there are clearly a lot of questions here. So this core issue of how we value ourselves against how we value other people. And I say our shamefully as part of white America, this dynamic that's unfolded over the years of um taking a system for prosperity that existed in America that then started to fall apart as soon as the civil rights movement happened because it was going to include everyone and not just white people, has actually created um, a dynamic in this country where it's not just Black America, people of color who are suffering economically. It's all of us. Mm -hmm. And that um, aside from the moral imperative of taking care of everyone, mm -hmm. that there's actually an economic reality that mm -hmm. people are not addressing, which yeah. is that we're all in it together. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, Citigroup last summer, uh, their sort of internal think tank released a report calculating that if we had closed the racial economic divides between black and white Americans 20 years ago, divides that were created by public policy and can be closed by public policy, I would add, our economy would be $16 trillion larger. I mean, you know, the My math grandmother this, would say that's a lot of chocolate bars. <laughs> the math on this, you know, is kind of indisputable. You know, I think about it in the context of women at work today, right? We know that this, that the economic crisis created by the pandemic has just been born disproportionately by women. And if you think about why that is, it's because of the ways that we drained the pool and have not refilled it. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the pool of public goods and public resources that say, hey, you know, these are th pretty common things to life. Right. Having children, needing both parents to work in an economy that uh, is growing more and more equal and unstable. Um, you know, needing to afford healthcare. Um, needing to afford family leave when somebody inevitably gets sick, right? It's not a different species of human being that gets sick. It's all of us. Right. And yet the United States not only sort of 
you know, drained the pool of the kinds of public resources that we had guaranteed our people with that racial asterisk in the middle of the century, things like free college and, you know, massive housing subsidies. But we haven't updated our infrastructure for the way we live now. And so because of its it's so threadbare. We don't have a public health system. We don't have universal childcare and pre-K. We don't have a, a real just sort of infrastructure of care and support mm -hmm. for families. Instead, we have women. <laughs> right. And so women have been forced to choose between putting food on the table, taking care of their families and keeping them safe. And so we have had been pushed out of the workforce in droves. And so that's why this is a women's issue. Women, black, white, and brown need to be united in the need to refill the public pool and put care at the center of our economy. Heather, one of the things that you led us to in the book, as you kind of framed the problem, helped us understand what caused it, were five discoveries that are the potential antidote to this. Some of it's um, tactical, some of it's cultural. Um, and it all interrelates. And I'd love it if we could explore some of them, because I think they're concepts that are really important, whether we're talking about the workplace or society at large, um, chief of which is the solidarity dividend. Yeah. Like, this is the antidote to zero sum thinking. That's right. What is it? How does it work? So this is something that I started to discover along my travels that every issue that I dug deeply into, I found the fingerprints of racism all over it. I found the divide and conquer strategy by the people who are holding back progress. And yet I also found that when people rejected the zero sum, linked arms across race, they were able to unlock what I began to call this solidarity dividend, this gain that could come only through collective action, only through bridging racial divides um, that are things that we just simply can't achieve on our own. Things like cleaner air in a community I visited in Richmond, California, where they had this multiracial um, black, white, brown, immigrant and native uh, coalition to take on the big polluter in their community. And they won some real gains in community benefits agreements uh, in, that, in that city that had long been polluted and segregated. I found solidarity dividends in Kansas City, where this black, white, and brown coalition of fast food workers, right, the people at the absolute bottom of our economic hierarchy, had banded together and only through organizing together for things as simple on the one hand as, you know, fix the grease trap so we stop, you know, having burns as we're working um, to, you know what, let's, let's push to have our city raise the minimum wage from $7, you know, to $13. And, and those are the kinds of solidarity dividends that I think we can have all over the country if we simply recognize that the things that are keeping us up at night, American families, are common problems and there are common solutions. And really the main reason why we don't have those common solutions is that our politics has become fractured across lines of race, right? Mm -hmm. We have very racially polarized po political parties that did not used to be the case. It really began when Lyndon Johnson became this, the last Democrat to win the White House with, I'm sorry, the last Democrat to win the majority of white voters. And that was, you know, after he signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, no majority of white people has ever voted again for a Democrat. And so that means that the two political parties aren't really contesting on the grounds of what actually Americans need, right? There's this sort of lock that one party has on the white vote even though it is not delivering, in my opinion, 
the kinds of economic supports that our country needs, the kind of good governance that our country needs. Look only at Texas as a great example of drained pool politics. When you say, we, we don't need the federal government, you know, the sort of states' rights, we don't need regulation, we don't need to plan for the future, let's cut and cut and cut, um, you know, let's, let's sort of cut corners as much as possible doesn't even actually deliver on the low cost, the deregulation experiment and, and the sort of raw absence of any kind of governance, um, you know, left millions of people in the dark without power and without Literally. water. Yeah. Literally. Um, never mind the opioid epidemic. Right. There are so many examples of failures of governance of of the drained pool politics really coming home to roost to, uh, for everyone. But the solidarity dividend is the opposite. It's really what we can win if we come together. So in Heather, in coming together, you also talk, as you've mentioned, as we've been talking, refilling the pool of public goods. What are the ones that we need now? What are the ones that are most urgent? Oh man, do we have a laundry list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking healthcare, education, exactly. minimum wage, equal pay. <laughs> yes. Just she, education, yeah. What she said, 100%. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. What are, we've tried, right? Let's, let's, let's be totally fair and not ideological about this and say, let's just look at the evidence. Has it worked to have each individual family try to provide for all of those things? No. No. It, it doesn't add up. You have got to share the expense of these things that we all need. It's just smart investing. <laughs> Never mind the world we're in right now after the, the terrible economic impact of the pandemic yeah. and what everyone is walking into once it's safe to go back to work. That's right. And, and the thing is, Laura, this is not going to be the last time. We are entering an era of mass crisis, right? Between climate change, mass movements, involuntary movements of people, um, you know, pandemics. It, it's just a time for us to roll up our sleeves and do the things together that we can't do on our own. And so, yes, it is time for us to trust one another again and trust in these vehicles for collective action that can lift the floor for everyone and make everyone safer. So as we're talking about, you know, binary options, zero-sum game, one size against the other, um, one of the things you also noted on that list was that one size has never fit all. And it yeah. doesn't mean that um, there's only two options either. Yeah. How do we understand this and put it into play um, where we can start to think in more nuanced and complex ways about the problems in front of us and how we approach them? Yeah. This is really important. You know, it was important to me as, as a Black woman economic policy advocate, you know, making the case of racism's nearly universal costs that I don't ally to the fact that they are disproportionately still born, of course, by the targeted people. And so just as much as I say that racism has cost white people as well, I also want to be clear that we still have people standing at different depths of that drained pool, right? And it's That's because right. of the racist history of wealth, uh, of the encouragement of wealth and the creation of wealth in this country, the explicitly racist history, that you have a college graduate black household has less average wealth than a white high school dropout household has. Now, it's really important for those kinds of facts to be known because 
instead, otherwise we look at the economic disparities as they are today. And, you know, we just say, oh, well, it's because black people are lazier or they don't have as good as education or whatever. All of these things that put the responsibility back on the people who have worked so hard to come from a deficit created by racist policymaking. And so we both need to recognize that history, which so few people know. I mean, I take just a couple of pages in each chapter to talk about the history of racist policymaking that got us to the place that we are, whether it's in our lending markets or our housing markets, or it's in education or environmental injustice or in labor unions. And, and it and is in workers. all of them. And it's in all of them. That's right. I mean, you really, voting rights, you really can't, you can't tell the story of this country, the very brief, may I remind you, story of this right. country, right? without really talking about how very few societies in history have been as racist in their policymaking as the United States. And the ones we normally think of, South Africa, you know, Hitler's Germany, took their lessons from our policymaking. Which is chilling in a way that's hard to wrap my head around. And, and it's real. insane that it's not the way we think of it. Right, and we think of ourselves it, yeah. as the saviors, uh, right? Like we beat the Nazis. Not the Nazis took lessons from us. Right. You know? <laughs> the details do matter here. By yeah. the way, for those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Heather McGee. She's the author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. So, Heather, this there's so many components to this. I want, and I could, t I have, could ask you questions for about a month, but one of the things I'd really love to learn about, because I do think it's kind of at the heart of changing this, is how we reset as a country, as a mm -hmm. community, as human mm -hmm. beings with one another. Mm -hmm. And in the book, um, uh, you tell us about truth, racial hearing, and transformation, acknowledging also a particular woman, Dr. Gail Christopher. Who was she and what is it? And help us understand what we could learn from it. So as I said, you know, everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And I think a big problem with our economic decision-making in this country is that the stories that we believe are incomplete, mm -hmm. right? We're not on the same page about how it is that the economy got the way that it is. And so that's why I think it's so important that we do what you know, virtually every other high functioning country that has had the kinds of sort of racial trauma and wounds and sectarian violence that has marked our country's history, do some kind of process as a nation to get on the same page so that we can turn it. And yet it can't be like the truth and reconciliation commissions because the reconciliation suggests that we were together at first and therefore you know, right. can and come back. We actually have to transform, right? We were founded on this zero-sum belief in a racial hierarchy. And so we have to adopt something new. And my mother is Dr. Gail Christopher, and she has been working in social policy for decades. And for the past 10 years has been developing a framework that was then um, sort of launched uh, by hundreds of people in with support of the Kellogg Foundation, where she worked at the time, called Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. And what it does is it's a framework that gives people in community the tools they need to do a process in their own communities 
to bring together stakeholders from every sector of the community. One of the first important steps is to create a new community history of the community. In the book, I go to Dallas where they've created this, this document and this, you know, obviously there's like a lecture series and movies and everything that tell the real racial history of Dallas in a way that 90% of the, of the community didn't even know, black, white, or brown. And then do these visioning sessions of saying, okay, where are the parts, where is this hierarchy of human value, this false belief in a hierarchy of human value? Where do we see it in our society? Where does it show up in our laws, in our, in our separation as a community, in our economy? And then where are the narratives that are perpetuating it coming from? You know, whether that's the way the news coverage is, what is taught in the schools, you know, how, how our political discourse. Uh, so it's this process, it's sort of a guided process. It's very open for each community to make it its own, but it helps people build relationship and build a sense of common investment in a, a community free of that false belief in the zero sum and in racial hierarchy. And so, um, you know, this to me was one of the more exciting and revelatory parts of the book. I hadn't, you know, it's my mother's work, but I hadn't really dug into it until um, <laughs> I was writing the book. Um, and I went around the country and talked to so many people who were involved and I ended up sort of really telling the story of Dallas. Um, and I think it's something that we need to do across the country. Um, and I think it does need to be rooted in community in the way that this model is. You can have a blue ribbon commission like the Kerner Commission in the 1960s. You can have things in Washington, um, but you really at this point when we're so fractured and there's so much misinformation and disinformation, you really do need to start at the community level. And what's exciting about the TRHT model is that anybody could take it up, right? The We've had a couple of dozen colleges and universities who have taken it up and become anchors in their community for it. It needs to get to scale, it needs funding, it needs you know lots of staff and professionals to, to proliferate it, but I think it's an exciting model because I just don't see how we get there. I don't see how we get to a place of, um, of a sense of common purpose when our public square has been so degraded and so much has been lost. So Heather, I wanna ask a few questions because I was struck by it. It sounded, um, A, just the idea of a studied, tested framework that's so promising, that's enormously encouraging, but also to start to understand what are the components of it um, as we try and make real change happen in our own communities, whether it's our workplace or our college campuses or the towns that we live in um, and the country as a whole. So am I right in that it's really, it sounds like a curriculum, a way of um, taking in new information to change the way that we frame something we used to think we understood and yeah. then come to understand it differently. And then from that new understanding, interact with each other in a different way. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And the thing is, it's a framework for the communities to create their own curricula in some ways, right? It's not it's not one size fits all. <laughs> and, and there is a different racial history of Dallas versus St. Louis versus, you know, Topeka and, and, you know, the, the dynamics may be different, but it's, it's a set of questions really that prompts community stakeholders to come to some answers together. You know, 
Mm-hmm. How much of it is um, opening people's eyes to other people's experiences so mm-hmm. that they can understand the problems that need to be solved more thoroughly? And how much of it is about healing relationships and building trust again between people? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there is this component. It's not just truth and transformation. There is this component that frankly is more my mother's bailiwick that I'm sort of coming around to, which is this healing piece, um, which is this piece that that recognizes that there is a massive trauma that is that is created by the lie of, of human hierarchy, by racism itself, both those um, as I write in the book, you know, racism is a poison first consumed by its concoctors, right? It does, it touches everyone. And, and because it, it is, you know, if you're a religious person, um, and I do a little bit of, of, of talking in, in my journey to write the book with, with religious leaders and spiritual leaders of, of a bunch of different faiths, and I include some of that in the book, you know, it, it goes against your core humanity to believe that other human beings who share 99.9% of your genetic profile are somehow less than human. You know, there's a there's a violation there. And um, and there's a separation. And as human beings, we we actually yearn to connect and we connect through storytelling. So one of the principles within the truth, racial healing, and transformation process is these sort of stories where there's circles where you actually do share with one another, you know, your first memories of race, your, you know, childhood memories, you know, experiences you've had that you see differently now, and you really get to connect with people on a human level. And that is important because we're talking about collective problem solving. And if you don't have any relationship, and if you haven't made yourself vulnerable and you haven't made any bridge with the people who you know, are other stakeholders in your communities, then it, it does, it devolves into, you know, stereotype and distrust. When you were talking about what's needed to really bring this to scale, obviously mm-hmm. funding. So let's put the call out there, funders, <laughs> people who care, come on, this is good stuff. It's important. Um, but also part of the reason why funding's needed is because you don't, it's not like you're buying a cookbook and you go to the grocery store yourself and, yeah. you know, cook this up. There's facilitation that's part yeah. of this with trained facilitators. That's right. That's right. I mean, to do it right, you do need people who know what they're doing. Um, and there are a lot. There are a lot that have been trained, right? The Kellogg Foundation, you know, did a big investment in this. And then there have been a bunch of community foundations, like in Dallas, there are a number of community foundations that have supported the, the architecture of, of this effort. Um, yeah, it is important. It's not rocket science, but it is important. Um, and, you know, I think in general, Laura, we have a massive human infrastructure need in this country. You know, we need more people to take care of children and the elderly and people with disabilities and the homebound. We need more people to, you know, go door to door and do public health outreach. Um, you know, we need more people to collect oral histories of the, you know, generations that are that we're losing. I mean, there's just so much human work that we need that takes some training, but also could give just enormous amount of opportunity to people whose, you know, labor is now undervalued. It's an investment in solving problems for generations to come that's, that's worth right. our attention. So I want to talk about some generations for a moment with the few minutes we have left. Um, 
I always, I'm always delighted to see who are our role models, who mentors us. Um, it was part of why I found it so touching um, that it's your mom's work that's so relevant to your work mm-hmm. um, when you're such a superstar in your own right. Um, can you just share a little bit of um, how you came, like, how are you viewing um, her influence on you and then how it shapes the way that you're parenting? Oh, that's a nice question. Um, I have one child. I have a two and some change year old son um, who is my mother's favorite person. (laughs) (laughs) Your mother sounds a lot like mine in that regard. My daughter, you know. Oh, she she did Wins say the whole prize. Yes. she did say when when I had him she said well this is this was just not overrated <laughs> <laughs> um I you know I I I started my career really not actually doing work on racial justice um really doing work on economic issues because I felt like, you know, when policymakers made bad economic policy decisions, you know, everyone was impacted, um, virtually everyone was impacted, and and my people, Black people, were impacted worse. So that was the terrain I wanted to go in, whereas my mother has always been much more uh, attuned to these these core issues of, of race and racism. And so, you know, as often happens with the parental wisdom, you know, I've come around to to her her wisdom and the centrality of of her teachings, Um, bringing different tools and different ways of seeing the world for sure. Um, I think that my mom and I are going to write a book together next, actually, Uh, digging more deeply into these questions, Laura, that you're asking uh, about, you know, how, how truth, racial healing and transformation would work. You know, what, you know, how do we really unlock the solidarity dividends? What is next? Um, for the country, how do, where do we go from here? Now that we're, you know, I've laid out how we could possibly get on the same page. You know, what's what's the next chapter in the story of this young country? Um, and in terms of, yeah, go ahead. I hate to do this because we're running out of time, and I know I asked you a question, you don't get a chance to answer. Oh. <laughs> um, so let me just say that I'm so glad you two are writing a book because we need to learn more from both of you. Um, you. I hope you enjoy the work together as much as I've enjoyed the time with you. Thank you for joining us, Heather. Thank you, Laura, for a beautiful conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you to my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Take care of each other, everyone. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 